Welcome to the fourth episode of the Mergers and Acquisition podcast. Today negotiations will feature very heavily and I have an excellent guest to speak with as I thought he was the most challenging and fierce negotiator I've had sitting across the negotiation table in perhaps all my career. I welcome Javed Ahmed. Javed started his investment career at Morgan Stanley where he spent 12 years mostly in their commodities group. He joined VTOL as the global head of investments where he spent 13 years, leaving at the end of last year. I'm pretty sure he's not yet ready to take it easy and make podcasts like I'm doing. And if I'm to guess, he's probably planning to use his investment skills in the energy transition going forward. Very pleased you could make it, Javed. Welcome to the podcast. Hoos, thank you for having me. And I am certainly glad we're not engaged in a fierce negotiation. I'm happy about that as well. Before we start, it's also useful to give some background. Shell sold businesses in Africa and Australia to Vito while I was the head of the responsible Shell m and So with many of these deals and all the negotiations around them, including ongoing partnerships such as licensing, we were each other's counterpart. Not just once, but for multiple deals and with hours and hours spent across the table and on the phone. We both had to balance success on the individual deal with managing the long-term relationship. Before we go there, Javetta would like to start further back though and ask you, since you were so good at the negotiations, how did you learn it? I picked up this book, Art of the Deal, written by a guy you may know, Donald Trump. Ah, <laughs> that was later, not as long ago as when you started, I think. On a more serious note, I attended both law school and business school, and they offered courses on negotiation. For whose there was one study that caught my eye a long time ago and has left a real impression on me. I don't recollect the university that conducted the social experiment. The same set of facts were provided to the subjects, and then small teams were selected to negotiate opposite sides of the deal. The study showed that personalities matter. And depending on the counterparts that sat across each other, the negotiation outcome could vary up to 20%. What that means, Goos, is that if a less formidable counterpart than yourself was sitting across the table, the buyer would have bought assets up to 20% cheaper. But I want to bring to your audience's attention a book I recently read. It's called Splitting the Pie. The author is asking an important question. What is actually being negotiated? His simple example goes as follows. There is a delicious 12-slice pie. The book is called Splitting the Pie. Who's you and I have to decide how to split the pie. There's a catch. If we don't agree on a split, then you get four slices. I only get two. But even worse, our nemesis, fictitious George, gets the other six. If we get to a negotiated agreement, we get to split the entire 12 slices between the two of us. Now, some may say Roos was getting four slices and I was getting two. So maybe the same ratio should apply and Roos should get two thirds and I should get a third. Others suggest a more equitable split of six each. The author's question, what are we negotiating? In this case, it turns out it is really the incremental six slices. Once we understand that, then the negotiation should be easier. Who's? You should get three, and I should get three of the additional six slices. So you, Who's, end up with seven, and I end up with five. So there's both a behavioral 
and a mathematical dimension to negotiating. And that, I find, is a good challenge. That was a fair negotiation. And indeed, we split equally the result of uh, getting to a deal. So when you developed as a negotiator, was there somebody who was an example to you? And in what way? My very first job after university was with Wasserstein Perella, which was featured in the infamous book about leverage buyouts called Barbarians at the Gate. Bruce Wasserstein and Joe Perella were master practitioners of the art of M&A. And I'm pretty sure being around them in my early days or salad days would have imparted some M&A and negotiation insights with regards to what incremental value was at stake and the behavior dimensions of the various parties. I also spent one summer as an associate at a New York-based law firm, Wachtell Lipton. This is a law firm renowned for the M&A practice. And again, this goes hand in glove with negotiation tactics. So who's I suppose I absorbed interesting learnings from these two firms as I embarked on my investment career. And can you say something about the most complex deal you've been involved in? Yes, I would probably say the purchase of the African downstream business from Shell presented multi-dimensional complexity. First, the deal had geographic complexity. It spanned many countries. Imagine signing multiple sale purchase agreements. Second, there was duration complexity. There was a long time between signing the deal and finally owning the business. Multiple permissions were required. And as you know, Roos, the longer the time between signing and closing, the more chances for things to go awry. Third, there was commercial complexity. Retail businesses require brand and lubricant arrangements. These commercial dimensions certainly add to the complexity of a negotiation. And finally, there was carve-out complexity. Invariably, when buying subsidiaries from big companies, the carve-out procedures demand attention to detail. I can attest to each of these complexities having been your counterpart in Javed. I think there were more than 15 countries involved. Absolutely, and uh, I don't know whether you remember, this was right around Arab Spring breaking out in Northern Africa. Yeah, that was another heavy political dimension. So if it gets that complicated, do you have suggestions on how you would organize teams for transactions and negotiations with such complexity? There are many different approaches. I've tended to organize the negotiation team on the basis of some simple principles. First, diligently list the questions to ask that will inform an investment decision. In other words, frame the problem. Second, with these key questions in hand, organize the team so they're best equipped to credibly answer these questions. Third, align outside consultants and other professional service entities along the lines of these important questions. I find that this process creates explicit accountability for answering the questions and also helps establish sensible negotiation positions. And what would you consider more difficult, buying or selling a business? I've always found buying to be more difficult since it requires taking on a brand new risk position. I know people say 
that when you own a business, it's akin to making the decision to reinvest every time you reevaluate your portfolio. This is a valid perspective, but psychologically, I find that a business that is already owned in the portfolio has a cadence the owner understands, and selling is more about timing the investment cycle, especially if there is no pressure to sell. And now you have all these years of negotiation experience, Javed. If somebody comes in working for you, and for the first time they're going to lead a deal time, what bits of advice would you give to them? Hmm. Again, let me think about that. First, I think a deal team should try and understand the strategic drivers for a transaction. So they should ask a few important questions and be comfortable with the answers. I mean, for example, why are you doing the transaction? What are you willing to pay? What risks are you willing to absorb? Next, I think it's pretty important to try and understand the counterparty's motivation. And then finally, get to know the people you're dealing with. If you remember the study I mentioned earlier, understanding the team you are going to sit across can be valuable. I like this, Javed. My three bits of advice would be, firstly, listen to Javed's advice, because I like these why questions, and they're really important, even if you're in the company, not the one setting the strategy. And the advice on negotiation is good as well, of course. Secondly, I would argue that people need to look at their valuation, work out what the key assumptions are going to be, and also check what variations in these assumptions could kill your deal. And thirdly, I would ask people to think about the importance of time in the deal. Prepare well, and then watch your pace, and also be very conscious on how your counterparty is dealing with time. In the last episode of this podcast, we had Julian Milkriest of Bank of America, and we discussed some pitfalls to avoid. The first one he mentioned was to realize that every conversation you're having is a negotiation. And therefore, try and be consistent on all your messages. What mistakes do you come across, Javed? I think the biggest mistake I come across is the wrong timing, meaning the wrong timing to do a transaction tends to be the costliest mistake. Energy cycles, I mean, we're in the energy business, have high peaks and low, low troughs. They tend to be linked to fundamental supply-demand balances along the energy value chain. I'm not sure that enough focus is paid to these supply-demand balances when transactions are being considered, which can result in selling the part of the energy segment which is out of favor or buying into the wrong segment at an expensive point in the cycle. For example, I've always found investing in shipping can be hazardous this way. But once you're comfortable with your timing and that your timing is sound, you have to start thinking about leverage. And this is an important focus area. Unlike industrial companies, energy companies need working capital. They need to be able to withstand the amplitudes of the cycle. So another pitfall has to do with the amount of debt that is acceptable. On the human front, deal teams can convince themselves early on in a process that an investment makes sense. They cross the Rubicon prematurely which means that when data contrary to a thesis emerges, our psychology is to rationalize it away. So remaining disciplined to as close to the end as possible is important. Further, on the human behavior front, I have held the view that if there is an industrial logic to a transaction, it will happen, irrespective of personalities involved. I don't know what you think about that, Hoos. 
Well, if there's no logic, I agree that personalities cannot win the deal uh, just because of, of their personalities. But I do think that personalities can kill a deal, even if the logic would be there. Okay, I'll try to summarize the key points we discussed so far. Javed got into M&A almost straight from university and saw early on how personality can affect negotiation outcomes. That's why he suggests that you should get to know your counterparty as an individual, as well as their drivers to do a deal, but not before you've asked some serious why questions regarding the deal you're starting on. I also suggested watching out on valuation and the pace of your deal, and then make sure you get your timing right in the cycle and look at your leverage. Don't get caught up in the deal, just stay cool. Let's now break for a message about Pilco, the sponsor of this podcast. Pilco and Associates is the leading advisor to deal leaders and senior executives on operational, EHS and ESG risks and liabilities in the global chemical and energy industries. Since 1980, the firm has advised on over $600 billion of transactions involving facilities in 80 countries, including some of the highest profile deals during the past five decades. Pilco's advisors have an average of 38 years of relevant professional experience in operational and executive roles with major energy and chemical companies. For more information, go to pilco.com. Javet, let's go to the next level. And if you don't mind, get a little bit more personal. Let's give each other some advice. So how about one thing each that you admire and one bit of advice that you would give? Javet, I'm always impressed by your mastery of the brief. The business, the macro trends, but then a lot of detail as well. You really know what you're talking about in every deal we were negotiating. That made me get out of bed early to be properly prepared, as I knew that I would not be able to manage this negotiation by knowing just the headlines and doing some improvisation, or by leaving it to the experts. How did you manage to be such a master of the subject? Well, you're being too kind about the mastery point. I do think I'm curious and I enjoy solving problems. And that combined with the fact that I don't have any time-consuming hobbies means I can devote solid chunks of time to being a curious problem solver. I can imagine that you're just working your spreadsheet following the questions that you've asked. And therefore, you're also asking difficult questions in a negotiation. That's my experience. The bit of advice is actually a lesson I want to share that I learned in Shell. Um, this was an event where we had just acquired a new customer and they came to visit us. We we're really pleased to have gained their business recently. At that meeting, we needed to agree on a price increase for the product we were supplying. I have my two product managers in the meeting and they were well prepared with all the data. In fact, there was not an argument the customer could make that we did not have an answer to, or even to. We made our case very well articulated and won every single argument hands down, but still I got the feeling something was wrong. The customer hated the experience and I realized we're almost losing him. It took me a few weeks to rebuild the relationship and to re-establish trust. And my lesson was that you can win the battle, but lose the war, if you don't find a way to stay friends with the counterparty. And in our negotiations, Javet, I got to feel once or twice the same way that customer did. And I think with your intellect, you will win many battles, but you will probably win more wars when you couple it with the charm that you also have so much of. Thanks, Goos. The fact that we're sitting across each other means the charm prevailed. Absolutely. 
Now your turn, Javed. Tell me something about my style that you like and give me some advice. Who's your honest and you're pragmatic? Yes, you certainly postured for tactical effect. But as a senior negotiator, you would set a constructive tone and culture. When you run into roadblocks, Woos, which are inevitable in complicated deals, people trust you. And I'm certain that has helped bridge many divides. In our jobs, we sit across so many different teams and many different types of personalities. But when I sat across you and we had the opportunity to negotiate, I knew that we would arrive at a fair outcome for both parties. Thank you, Javed. You're being very kind. So what's the bit of advice you would give me? Who's your perfect? But if you were to push me, I think at times you would suppress your creative thinking. I know you're creative. Maybe it was a shell environment or maybe it was you negotiating. But I think there was a lot more creativity and I'm certain you could have unleashed it. Do you agree? I actually think you're right. This is maybe why I ended up doing M&A in Shell, as M&A is essentially a creative process. So I found the one spot in Shell where I could be as creative as possible. But maybe by the time I would sit at the negotiation table, some of my creativity was already used up in internal negotiations. And now outside Shell, there are no boundaries. Thanks for your honesty and tact. Javed, I think it's fair to say that the cultures at Shell and Vito were different. I didn't like the many decision layers at Shell, and VTOL, being a smaller organization with fewer divisions, it always seemed from the outside that you have less of that. And at the same time, I thought it was great that once in Shell, when we had our negotiation mandate internally agreed, there was a lot of freedom on how you could go about your business to get a deal done. Often, I would be able to move more quickly than actually my counterpart assumed, as this perception of a large company bureaucracy is widely held, and use that to my advantage. Yes, who's I think I was on to the fact that you at times were using bureaucracy as a bad cop. By the way, who's have you observed that the good cop, bad cop routine is such a basic negotiation tactic? You would think people are wise to it by now, but it seems to be deployed by most negotiating teams and remains effective. I've also seen situations where outside consultants or vendors can play the bad cop role. Yes, I've seen examples of these vendors supporting deal teams, exceeding their briefs, and trying to see if they could get away with a moment of weakness on the other side, or a technicality to score a significant advantage, and generally adopting a, an aggressive style. What do you think in such situations drives people to try and score a short-term win at the risk of major damage to a relationship? Whose most professional service providers, like lawyers, environmental consultants, quality earning professionals, they're experts in their respective domains. I'm pretty sure they get frustrated during a long deal process, and they can be blunt to get their point across. And this can come across as abrasive and aggressive. I tended to chalk these to stylistic differences. But for sure, the bad cop bit can come into play as well. Seasoned deal team leads can usually smooth over these frictions. On another note, my experience has been that good cops tend to be the decision makers and they keep the big strategic picture in mind. What do you think? Well, that's a great insight. I've not thought about that, but now that you mention it, you're probably right. That means that maybe the bad cop antics can be ignored a little bit more often. Now, let's have a look at the energy transition from your perspective. 
Vital was also at opportunities around the energy transition, but we know that the world is not investing enough to create the sources of energy the world needs in the next 30 years. Not in fossil fuel, and certainly not in renewable or the associated infrastructure. A consistently higher energy price should help, but some of the infrastructure, such as electricity distribution, is running behind. So, Javed, where do you see the opportunities and challenges? There is good consensus that how we manufacture energy, the manufacturing of the molecules and electrons, is changing and must continue to change. What is more heavily debated is what is the rate of this change? In my opinion, this transition will be inflationary and may even have implications for long-term inflation targets. I think one area of opportunity is going to be around owning the energy customer, be it a business or a consumer. Energy is physically transported, unlike software or telephony. Energy requires a very physical footprint. And in the end, we still use energy the same way. We switch on a light, we drive our car. So for me, a good opportunity set is going to be around the ownership of the energy customer. So can you give a more specific example of that, Javed? Whose one area worthy of exploration is the refined products midstream infrastructure. Will this continue to be valuable? Does it play a role in the ownership of the end customer? Thank you, Javed. I'll try to summarize again. And thanks for making me aware of my creative potential. I'll also think again about the good cop, bad cop routines, understanding that the good cop is almost always the decision maker. And getting to the energy transition, you think that if you keep a good view on the fundamental supply and demand balances that you mentioned before, and you work with the existing infrastructure, you'll get some good investment opportunities. Javed, now that you've left Vital, I know you're thinking about other options. What should be the key elements in your new job description? And will it involve negotiations? Hus, I want to be deeply involved in mapping out the supply and demand of energy and seeing what opportunities arise. The collision of traditional and emerging energy, I believe, will generate compelling investment choices across the capital structure of energy companies. One thing is for sure. I will be happy to leave the negotiations and the tactics to more accomplished people. Well, Javed, I'm sure you will be an inspiring example to your future M&A teams. And I wish you lots of success in your future endeavors. Thank you for being on this podcast. Hus, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be on and uh, look forward to listening to more of your podcasts in the future. And that was the end of this episode of the Mergers and Acquisitions podcast. Please visit pilco.com for more information or to leave your feedback and ask questions. Thank you for listening.